from Beyond the Beltway, this is Bruce Dumont with our weekly analysis of national politics, featuring occasional injections of Roman innuendo, all offered up by our panel of political insiders, pundits, power brokers, public servants, professors, and most importantly, plain-speaking Americans from coast to coast. Tonight, featuring commentary by Democrat Patrick Hanley and Republican Josh Cantrell, and in our second hour, live from Frankfurt, Germany, we'll be joined by Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, and he is with the Center for European Policy Analysis. And once upon a time, he was the head uh, of uh, U.S. Uh, Army Forces in Europe. And we will be talking about the buildup of uh, uh, what's happening uh, in Ukraine and, and Russia. And we'll be talking about not only the role of the United States and where those 3,000 troops uh, directed by the president are going to end up going. Some of them are already there. Some of them are making their way there now. But we will have a full hour to talk about uh, the subject with someone that knows a great deal about it. And again, it's nice to have you with us uh, for our full two hours this evening. However, in hour number one, we're going to talk a little bit about politics. It was a good week for Joe Biden. We'll uh, let our Democrat talk a little bit about that. But also, uh, uh, the Sunday show is really sort of uh, focused on some things that uh, uh, Mike Pence, who's been relatively quiet since he left the White House, uh, in a speech uh, last week, he said that uh, Donald Trump was wrong. And uh, you have not heard many Republicans come out and say it as succinctly as the vice president had to say it. And then the RNC met in the Salt Lake City over the weekend, and uh, they came up with a resolution saying that those that were at the uh, January 6th uh, rally or riot last uh, week, last year rather, represented legitimate political discourse. And that sent everybody in the, the national Sunday shows into cardiac arrest. So I, I want to begin with, with that, because uh, I, I, I'm going to begin with you, uh, because you're our card-carrying Republican tonight, uh, Josh Kandrow. You were not initially a Donald Trump fan. Then he became president, and I would say you became a very vociferous fan of the president's. And then January 6th came along, and uh, the bloom was off the rose for you. And I think at one point on this program early on, you said that your candidate for 2024, you hoped it would be Nikki Haley. So now with everything that's been happening, with everything that's been said, and I think specifically with the announcement uh, utterance by the vice president, where do you put yourself as a Republican right now? I would say that, um, I, well, first of all, you accurately captured my opinions over the well, years. That's and, my, and my that's, transformation. That's my role. Okay. And I would say this, that I am a big tent Republican. I am a Republican that wants to have differing views about a variety of issues and a welcoming party. It cannot be solely the Donald Trump party. I like a lot of what the Trump administration did policy-wise. I wasn't a fan sometimes of the president's demeanor and tweets and all that, but I was willing to look past that because I liked the policy. And I would welcome, if Donald Trump wants to run again, that's great. But he should face a primary field. And I'd like to see people like Nikki Haley in that field, Ron DeSantis, and others, quite frankly, because it is a big tent party. But after... Look, you, didn't, you didn't mention Mike Pence. Um, Mike Pence is the only one that's shown the gonads, if you will, to call it like it is. Everyone else is mushy mushy 
Well, look, I, I, I don't want to see 16 candidates run against Donald Trump okay. this time. It needs to be a more confined field because otherwise he's just going to run away with it again. But you know what? Um, January 6th was an abomination. It was a horrible day for this country. Republicans stand for law and order. What we saw on January 6th was not law and order. It was disorder, and I, I'm disgusted by what happened on that day. So Liz Cheney being censured and Adam Kinzinger being censured uh, is not a good idea for you? They should not have their wrists slapped? I am not a big fan of either mm -hmm. one of them because mm -hmm. I wish that they would kind of just be quiet and move on to other things. But the fact is, is that when it comes to January 6th, you know, they do not, we, we don't need to be paying any more attention to them. And the fact that the Republican well, about, National what Committee... What about the facts are? What about the facts? I mean, is it not important to know what the facts were? And I think there's we, Republicans I, that... I, I think, think we know well. what the facts were, and I think that the <clears throat> Republican National Committee was wrong to censure them. They have a right to speak out. They have a right to their opinion about January 6th. And the fact that they, the Republican National Committee spent any part of their w winter meeting focused on that and not focused on the Biden administration's abysmal record and not focused on winning the midterms. The Republicans ought to gain 60 seats in the House. They ought to retake okay. the Senate. That should be the focus, not these two. All right, let's talk about uh, Patrick Hanley. Patrick, you're a Democrat. Uh, do you like the, the idea that uh, the Republicans are spending so much time on defense with Donald Trump and also... Uh, uh, that obviously, you know, you've always had the media on your side as the Democrat. But, uh, I mean, I couldn't think there, there, there could be a better example of that than, than today's program. I think that uh, Martha Raddatz uh, is, is a, uh, she was a, she was a, uh, a test case for, uh, you know, bias in media with her reports today. But uh, what do you think? Are you sure. laughing about it? No. The, first of all, this is what a, what a refreshing mm. opening to our uh, hour together, Josh. I, I really appreciate that. I feel a little bit like I've been living in the <laughs> twilight zone the last several years uh, with Republicans failing to acknowledge kind of the ridiculous authoritarian anti-democratic tendencies of the former president. So this is some daylight. This is this is very exciting. Um, and, and, and to your question, Bruce, about how I feel about it, listen, uh, you've extended the first olive branch, I'll extend the next. The president's polling numbers are no secret. We are having trouble connecting with voters right now. Uh, and in that context, I very much welcome an opposition party that is going through its own differences and sorting out its own troubles uh, as we sort out our own message. And I think the reality is both parties need to come to voters with a strong, forward-looking message about what we can deliver for folks. Yeah. I, I, that's what I want to see. I want to see the Republicans put forward their agenda. I want them to move forward and say what they would do if they get back in power. When you look at Joe Biden's last week, now the last several weeks have not been very good, and we've talked about that on the on the on the Beltway. But last week was a pretty good week for the president, starting with the with a jobs report that surprised everyone, yeah. and then uh, this this terrorist raid that, yeah. uh, that that took somebody off the battlefield that uh, they'd been looking for for a long time. Well, look, I'm an American first. And okay. I and so being an American before a Republican, yeah. I am thrilled with the jobs report. Yeah. And I'm happy that he took the terrorist out, okay. just like I'm happy that Trump took the previous terrorist out. And I'm happy that Obama took got the bin, bin Obama. Laden. As an American, we should all be happy about that. <clears throat> but Biden's going to have good weeks. He's going to have bad weeks. The point is, is that 
Republicans have got to focus on supporting the president when he does good things like take this ISIS leader out. That's, that's great. But also point out when the president is doing things. How do you expect the national news media, and by the way, whether this is the Republicans or the Democrats, how do you expect the national news media to ignore the fact that there's, there's trouble within the Republican conference, there's trouble within the Democratic conference, and that part of their role is to talk about when these parties that hopefully in their way they'd like to be united, but the, unite, the Republican party is not united now, and frankly, neither is the Democratic Party. We've got a pause. I'm Bruce Dumont, back with Beyond the Beltway shortly. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces, just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and Ad Council. One in three adults has pre-diabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has pre-diabetes, with early diagnosis, pre-diabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has pre-diabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. 
Here's Dumont back. I, I don't know whether anybody on TV can see the, the water all over my shirt. Can you guys see the water on my shirt? A little bit. No, we can't. Fritz has, Fritz has cut it off electronically. Well, then I'm, I had a really interesting story about it, but I'm not going to tell it. Well, well, we'll do it. I'll sell it on the Facebook page. Um, let's get back to, uh, you were talking about how you feel. And d during the break, we talked briefly about the Olympics. How do you feel about the Olympics? When you see Vladimir Putin and President Xi up there, buddy-buddy together, and, and you see all the, uh, the countries of the world entering uh, the, uh, uh, the bird bath or the bird cage, whatever it's called, <laughs> <laughs> the bird bath, how do you feel about it? Are you, do you get inspired by it, or do you think that the United States should not have been there? No, I'm, I'm glad the United States is there. I think that we are right to do the diplomatic boycott, but it's not fair to the athletes mm -hmm. not to be there. But, um, you know, I've, I really don't like the fact that it's in China and that China's hosting after mm -hmm. they foisted this virus on the world for two years. I think there should have been some penalty for that. Um, and as far as Putin and Xi goes, I mean, look, I'd, I'd rather, uh, I, I, I'm not, I, I don't think that we're going to see this grand Russia-China alliance. They're still rivals themselves. Mm -hmm. um, I'd love to see us try to get Russia a little bit back into but our where is orbit. the United States, uh, Patrick? Where is the United States when these games are being planned? Obviously, I don't think you yeah. cancel the, you know, the, the Olympics with three weeks to go, sure. even though diplomatically that's what they did. But, I mean, right. when, when these cities are being chosen and countries are being chosen, I mean, this was a long time ago. And, yeah. and they're the second... They're only the first country ever to host both the, the Summer and the Winter Olympics. That's right, how does that's that, right. How does that politics work? Do yeah, you know? well, the, I was just going to say the disappointment that I have really is with the International Olympic Committee, uh, which is, you know, if you followed it over the years, kind of a catastrophe in its own right. It's, it's demonstrably corrupt. Uh, Russian officials, Qatari officials, kind of across the board, have uh, have paid folks for their votes. It's really to, to your to your question about where the United States is. I think as a federal government, we just don't play that game, which frankly I'm proud of. Uh, but at the city level, we've we've competed for games. Chicago was a finalist not too too long ago for and the Olympic Games, and we lost. That's you true. know we lost because Rio was corrupt. Yeah. How does Chicago lose? The battle of corruption. Right. How, do we, how did that happen? I mean, we, we're, we're the most happen? corrupt city in the world. Why? How did that happen? <laughs> I mean, come on. Rio, we're come reforming on. our and, ways. <laughs> <laughs> how did you feel? How did you feel about? And this to me was a one-upsmanship by President Chi. I, yeah. I give him a you know a brownie point for this. Uh, he had a Uyghur holding the uh, the flag during the the ceremony. I heard about that, but I also heard that the Uyghur that held the torch during the 2008 games, his father was disappeared not long after that, and now he's an outspoken activist around Uyghur human rights. So I think this sort of thing, this sort of propaganda this, but this is going to bite him. This was the father from 2008. That's right, that's right. But from not the, the Uyghur from the other night. Sure. Yeah. We don't know. Don't know. He could be disappeared, for all we know. I mean, this is propaganda. And that's one of the. But did it work? Did it did it work to to uh, no. millions of people watching on television? I don't think it convinced anybody. I, it certainly didn't convince me. I saw the highlights of it. It didn't convince me. And again, China has yeah. no business being rewarded with these games after yeah. what they've done to the world. So what are we going to do about it? Well, what nothing we now. What are, what are we going to do about it? I mean, As, Jimmy Carter. In 1976, not exactly, uh, you know, a, a paragon of, of uh, brilliant political moves. He pulled the whole everybody out. I'm there. not in favor of that. That punishes the athletes. Yeah. 
I like, I will praise what the Biden administration did, the diplomatic boycott, but let the athletes compete. That's the right move. It would have been the right move with Jimmy Carter. I mean, I think the reality is that the political gain that China was hoping for isn't going to materialize. What China gained in 2008, it was a, it was a coming out party of their country after decades of poverty and communism mm -hmm. to now be a world leader on the world stage. And they and it worked. 2008 was a huge banner year for China. I don't think 2022 is going to pay that same dividend. You have spent in your personal life, and tell everybody a little sure. bit about what you do, uh, but in your past professional life, mm. you spent a lot of time in China. I did. So I, you tell us a little bit about what you did then, yes. and uh, are you still involved in China? Uh, no, but I wish I was. I, I love China, actually. I have a, I have a deep love for okay. the Chinese people in Chinese cities. I spent about four years uh, while I was at the Asia Group in Washington, D.C., going back and forth to Beijing, Shanghai, Shenzhen, and I actually lived for a year in Hong Kong. Uh, and I had a tremendous experience meeting folks across the spectrum from the business community all the way up to the government and Communist Party. And I can tell you that, sadly, what I've seen over the last six, seven years is a degradation of the private sector in China and an encroachment of a consolidated dictator in Xi Jinping. Uh, let's remember, not six years ago, we were talking about whether or not Xi Jinping still had power because the old mode of government was that the Politburo was this kind of consensus organization. But mm -hmm. what we've seen since is the authoritarian dictatorship of one man, which is a real tragedy because I, I do, as I say, love China. Has he made the country stronger or weaker? He's made the country stronger in the short term, but I think it was a gamble and a mistake in the long term, because I think the reality is if you pull China out of the global system from which China has become such a great powerhouse, both economically and politically, uh, you are going to uh, dis distance it from global trade, from global commerce, and it's going to lose a lot of the power that it gained over the last 20 years. Josh, your background and currently uh, you're an attorney and yes. your cybersecurity is your bailiwick. Um, where do they stand? Where does China stand insofar as cybersecurity and how aggressive uh, have they been and are they likely to be as we uh, look to the future? They're extremely aggressive. I mean, back in 2008 during the Olympics, I mean, look, a lot of us were talking about it back then. Mm -hmm. They were getting very aggressive in the cybersecurity space that had been dominated by the Eastern European countries that used to be in the so Soviet orbit. Mm -hmm. China got better at it. It was state-sponsored. It was They have, have a program where they train their best and the brightest to hack into U.S. companies to do the ransomware attacks, etc., but also to steal intellectual property from Western countries. So it is a real problem, and it's something that has been a bipartisan. I mean, look, yeah. Ob Obama talked about it. Trump talked about it. Biden's talked about it. I think even the Bush administration late in their term were talking about it. But nobody, we haven't come up with an effective solution to deal with it. What, and part and, and of it, what could it be? What, what could well, it be? Let me make a quick plug, if you sure, don't mind. Ahead, we, sure. we have the, the China Competition Act that recently passed the House, passed the Senate in the summer, and is going to be reconciled. This is bipartisan legislation to put about $400 billion into play. Uh, working on research and development, the development of a domestic semiconductor industry, as well as the development of an internal supply chain. So efforts like these by the U.S., bipartisan efforts by the U.S. government uh, are what's going to help us retain the edge that we have over China in the next 10 years. So that, that, That's right, but I, I would also add this. We need to develop our own cybersecurity talent in this country, 
not only from a defensive standpoint, but from an offensive standpoint. Because what I see in my world is that the best and brightest from the government, they, they'll go work for the government, various government agencies, but then they'll come into the private sector and make three, four times as mm -hmm. much money. We need to invest in keeping these folks in the U.S. government, and frankly, at the state and local level, too. A lot of the ransomware attacks have been school districts. There have been hospitals. There have been local entities that have gotten hit, and it's, it's been devastating in many cases. What does it say about the, the way in which young people, and by the way, it isn't just young people that are experts in cybersecurity, but I think more so than not, it's, it's young people. My question to you is, are there things that the government can do to entice a young person to be more creative for their country or, or not? Or are there, are there large degrees of uh, uh, anti-American or anti-establishment that is within that sector that doesn't want to do anything for the government? Well, I think you, the, the second point you made concerns me. And that is the growing sense among younger people that they don't want to have anything to do with the U.S. government or with mm -hmm. any government, quite frankly. But No loyalty? Well, no, I'm not saying, look, we're talking about a spectrum here. We're talking about yes. a large group of people. Right. There are plenty of, pe <clears throat> of people in that generation who are loyal. And what I've said, and I said this on the industry circuit when I was speaking at conferences and the like, we ought to consider honestly having another branch of government that's focused strictly mm -hmm. on cybersecurity and recruiting young people, old people, middle-aged people, I don't care how old they are, into this service, into this, uh, uh, to, to protect. And likely they're not, they are, these are people that will not do anything that would be traditionally associated with military service mm -hmm. where there's a great deal of discipline, there's a great deal of responsibility. Right. But again, this is, a, this is a generation, again, I'm generalizing now, this is a generalization, uh, a generation that, uh, you know, they're not going to get a military haircut, they're not going to brush their teeth every day, they're not going <laughs> to... They're they're not going to make their bed so you can bounce a quarter on it. They're not going to do anything that 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 uh, a military mind would would think is important. Well, I so mean, how do you organize them? I, I look. How much dope do you have to give them? <laughs> well, and no, is that no, no. the answer? No, I think what you have to give them is tuition assistance. What I think you have to give them is programs in colleges across the country, uh, stipends and tuition to pay folks to follow these careers. When you send a strong signal to a generation that they can learn a skill, get a good job, that they can be proud of. I think there's more folks that are willing to do it. What's the message that, that has been sent to this generation by this government now, in your view? Oh, it's been, you know, we're going to take care of you and you don't really need to work. <clears throat> oh, I don't, these I don't the, these, I'm, talking, I'm talking about for the cyber people. Oh, well, but they're part of the generations that, that, that is getting the welfare checks from COVID that go on and on and on and on and on. And so there is a, a lack of incentive to go out and work at all. Patrick is country. shaking his head. We're going to find out what's in that head when we come back. I'm Bruce Dumont, 1-800-723-8029 from coast to coast and border to border and around the world at beyondthebeltway.com. I'm Bruce Dumont, back shortly from Chicago. One forty-five over ninety-two. One eighty over one eleven. One hundred and eighty-two over a hundred. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest. 
and then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it, or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces, just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Bruce Dumont, back a correction. I believe in the uh, last half hour, I made a comment uh, about um, China being the only country that has hosted both a summer and a winter Olympics. So that is incorrect. It was the city of Beijing is the only city that's ever hosted both. So I stand corrected. Our, our crack uh, members of our audience always alert to any mistake that I make, and it doesn't happen very often. But uh, <laughs> I did admit it tonight. Uh, or I don't admit it very often. Let's put it that way. Let's go to, uh, no, let's take a moment to introduce our guests. Let them introduce themselves. We're going to begin with Josh Cantrell. Josh, tell everybody who you are when you're not out on the slopes with your your uh, your young sons. Uh, you are all over the world doing all kinds <laughs> of stuff. Thank you, Bruce, for having me again. Um, and, yeah, I'm an avid uh, skier and outdoor enthusiast. Uh 
But uh, when I'm not doing that, I'm a political junkie and uh, Republican um, and uh, commentator and on this show and others and writing in various publications. Okay. And, a, uh, and an attorney U- as well. Tulane University. Uh, Louisiana State. LSU. Yes. Go Tigers. Go Joe Burrow. Yeah. Well, <laughs> let's, let's hope that's the case. And also, let's go to uh, Patrick Hanley. Patrick, tell us who you are. Sure. I'm a uh, small business owner living in Wenatka, Illinois, with a checkered past as a management consultant. Uh, but don't hold it against me. Uh, I spent about 10 years in Washington, D.C. Part of that time I spent at the Asia Group going back and forth to Asia Pacific. What is the Asia Group? The Asia Group was actually founded by the now director of Indo-Pacific Affairs of the National Security Council, Kurt Campbell, who was kind of the right-hand man to Hillary Clinton when she was Secretary of State. He left government with her and founded the Asia Group. We worked with uh, mostly American companies doing business across the Asia Pacific from India to Japan. Mm-hmm. And how many of these, is it a think tank per se? No, it's a consulting firm. Consulting firm. Okay, so how much of that is business related? All of it. All, all of all it is of business it. related. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we did a little bit of nonprofit work, but that was uh, pro bono. Let's go to calls. We have some callers on the line. Let's go to line one in McHenry County, Illinois. That's not far from where we do this broadcast. John is listening to us. John, go ahead. You're on the air. Thank you, and good evening, gentlemen. Hi. Good um, I was going to compliment both uh, Patrick and Josh about the uh, need to get the consistent message and and positive and bipartisan work done. But then Patrick brings up what I was going to talk about mm. when he talked about the China competitiveness uh, bill in Congress. And he's, he said that they were bipartisan. And I have to respectfully disagree. The vote on that bill in the House on Friday was anything but bipartisan. Mm-hmm. It was a straight party line vote up outside of Adam Kinzinger voting with the Democrats. And the reason was, at the last minute, the Democrat, the House Democrats throw in some genuinely poison pills. They threw in, you know, card check provisions for uh, for unions, for companies who receive funding through the Competes Act. And I recognize it's going to go to the conference committee. I know the Senate bill passed nearly eight months before. Mm-hmm. And I guess w- when people frame something that this is bipartisan, and then I see what the House vote was mm-hmm. on Friday when it was anything but bipartisan, that's where us regular folks out in out and across the country say, wait a minute, you know, this doesn't look bipartisan to me when the House has okay. to do yeah. such a partisan vote. Patrick, John, what about I, it? I welcome the correction. Thank you for calling in. I appreciate that. I was referring to the Senate bill last summer, which I think did have 19 Republicans vote for it. But you're right. This most recent House iteration was a bit more partisan. Okay. Hopefully we'll bring it back to the middle uh, in reconciliation. Can I ask you a question while we have you on the line? John, are you still there? John is gone. Okay, he's got other things to do in McHenry County tonight. Let's head to California. Joy is listening to us somewhere in the great Golden State. Joy, where are you calling from tonight? I'm in San Jose right now. But San Jose. And I started in, yeah, we started in San Diego, then went to L.A., and okay. now we're in San Jose. Okay, very good. What can we do for you tonight? You had some comments about the Republican Party? Yeah, my what I was I heard the Republican speaker talk about um, um, the big tent, and that's what he wanted the Republicans to strive for. But then he also said, you know, if Trump was wanted to run, that would be fine. And I look at what I think is a lot of Trump influence, and a big tent is not what I see. I I think 
if you listen to many of the Republicans talk, especially more on the further right side, the government is the last thing you'd want to work for. Mm-hmm. You know, it's all deep state. It's all that we do not, you know, the government, except for military and the um, police force, it's like it's all evil. And anyone who works for the government is lazy and they convey that very strongly. Um, and with the big tent also, what I see across the country are these transgender laws. Um, a friend of mine from business school, she has a transgender son, lives in Texas, and she thinks that her son's going to lose health coverage for the medicines he takes. Okay. Let's let Josh respond to what you've said. Well, Tori, you bring up some points that I agree with. I mean, in terms of the far right um, saying that the government is this or that and raising conspiracy theories. But what I'm talking about are the mainstream of the party, which is not captured by the far right, but which is people like me who want to have a big tent Republican Party that's open to, that welcomes all types of groups and beliefs into it, its party, and the, including people who support the former president, including people who don't, but people who want a forward-looking vision of limited government and getting this country back to its founding principles. That's but what if, I'm talking but about. But if you want if you want power, no matter where it is, if you want power, no one's going to give it to you. Historically, people don't give power. People have to go and take power. Donald Trump took power. Unlike any president who ran and lost, mm-hmm. he's decided, I'm not going to end my campaign because I think I was done wrong. That's mm-hmm. his belief. I don't believe that, but he does. Right. And so he keeps fighting, and the people that voted for him really like him. And there is, there is no strong person out there who said, you know what, other than the other day, when Mike Pence said, President Trump you're, was wrong. No one's ever said that. Since Election Day, no one has said that. Ron DeSantis hasn't said it. I mean, Kevin McCarthy said it for a while, and then he's been backtracking because he wants to be the Speaker of the House. Well, that's what but, I'm talking I mean, about, Bruce, is forward-looking. Called- Trump is looking back at the last election. I would like him to talk about, if he's going to run again, what am I going to do in my like, second term? I would like to know that, too. Now, some people feel, and I think there's some reason to fear this, is that if Trump makes it again, he's going to think everything that he did was okay, mm-hmm. and his second term is going to, uh, people won't even be able to believe what's going to happen in the second term, because he's not going to have to face the voters again, mm-hmm. and he can basically be outrageous. Some people would say, I don't know whether we could stand four years of an outrageous president. And my, I know Patrick Haley. Four more so, years so. of political. So the, I, I hoped in January, and I, I hope now, that this is an issue that Americans can get behind, that we deny the presidency from somebody who refused a peaceful transfer of power. That is that one fundamental thing that we've been doing since the founding, with the exception of the Civil War, which is something we don't want to do again. Uh, But the peaceful transfer of power and then neglecting to accept the legitimacy of an election that you lost. 
I mean, these are these are some foundational things. And if, if Trump were a Democrat, I promise you, I'd be saying the same. And I think we need to set aside. But if the Democrat, if the Democrats do that, then they're looking back. We would never do that. Oh, well, oh, oh, well you you um, just sort of made it tonight. Yeah. You're you're see, reminding people of that. I mean, yes. if you're reminding yes. people of that, right. you're, you're sucked into Trump's game. You're right. You're playing the 2020 election again. I thought you, I thought you suggested that Joe Biden might not accept the legitimacy of the next election. But no, no, you're right. Well, and the reality well, is this is something that drives me crazy. Certainly the media. But it's not something that drives the voters crazy. And the more we talk about the threat to democracy, the less we're talking about what we're going to do for the country when we get back into when we continue to be in power, like helping folks with their health care costs, like ensuring uh you know folks get good paying jobs and the resuscitation of the unions uh these are things that democrats can deliver. those are th- those are things that the democrats could be doing now they could be doing now but because they don't have the control of the house that they would like they've only got a few votes and because the senate is 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 locked in with with two democrats that you can't count on i mean uh and, and now you have the senator who had the stroke. Yeah. I mean, you're 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 down because your your math isn't right. Right. I mean, Mitch McConnell actually could go stake a claim to being majority leader right now. He's not going to no, do that. Point. But in any event, my problem with what the Democrats have done is that they have these very narrow majorities, mm-hmm. and they're governing like they want this big mandate, and they just don't have it. Mm-hmm. And 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 the fact that. Look, on Build Back Better, they should have started with Manchin, not ended it with him. They should have said, Joe, what are you in Kirsten Cinema? What are you willing to do on this? And then you take it to the progressives and say, this is the best we can do. And also and they went the other way, which just wasn't smart. You also shouldn't say that you're going to give your opinion and make your choice for Supreme Court justice at the end of February. You should have called Senator Sinema and Senator Manchin, invite them over to the White House and say, OK, who are you guys going to vote for? Right. And then appoint that person the next day. Right. And appoint the best person, not based on race. Well, you, no, no. You're, you're going you're going to appoint the best. He said he's going to appoint a black woman. That's fine. But c- come up with a black woman who those two senators are going to agree on. And again, you look at South Carolina, Lindsey Graham and T- Tim Scott, I think they've already agreed on, on Childs. Yeah. Back shortly from Chicago. Jill, why don't you tell the class what you did this weekend? Well, my dad and I went in search of some magical minnows and found a zillion of them in the stream from our lookout rock. Then my sister and I escaped from an evil slug king and went back to my super twig fort for safety. Then we told stories till it got dark and the Big Dipper led us all the way home. Where were you, Jill? We went to the forest. It's not that far away. Ask your parents to take you and your friends to the forest this week. It's closer than you think. Check out discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Song again. Here's that song again. For the hundredth time today, here's that song again. It's gonna be stuck in your head all day. Here's that song again. It will make you cray cray. You love your kids enough to watch that TV show a bajillion times. Love them enough to make sure they're in the right car seat for their age and size. Show them you love them. Keep them safe. Visit NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. 
Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and Ad Council. 145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest. And then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it, or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. Bruce Dumont back. When we continue after the news break at the top of the hour, we're going to be joined by uh, Lieutenant General Ben Hodges. He is with the Center for European Policy Analysis. Now, that sounds like a pretty hoity-toity job, but this is the guy that used to head the United States Army in Europe. Some of his predecessors were people like George S. Patton, Dwight D. Eisenhower, so he knows a little bit about the European landscape. He knows about, obviously, U.S. forces uh, that are there now or are heading there, and obviously knows a lot about what's happening uh, with Russia and the NATO countries. So, again, stick to it. We've got a great guest starting at uh, 7.05, uh, or at least uh, five minutes after the hour, wherever you're listening tonight, uh, with Lieutenant General Ben Hodges. I'd like to begin by getting reaction from our guests thus far and start with you, Josh. Has this... Uh, has, has Joe Biden done a pretty good job so far uh, diplomatically with uh, the situation with Russia and Ukraine? Uh, I, w- I wouldn't say pretty good. I mean, I, I would say fair. Uh, his comments at press conference a few weeks ago uh, indicating that uh, it would be okay if Russia took a little bit of Ukraine uh, were, not, um, were not good, and they were quickly uh, rolled back by the White mm-hmm. House. And I wonder how much uh, the Afghan fiasco has played into Russia's appetite in thinking that they can go and do something in Ukraine right now. What's your reaction about uh, the president's actions, Patrick? Yeah, no, I, I hear that. I'm honestly really impressed by the diplomatic team in Europe. So Karen Donfried, who's the assistant secretary for Eurasian Affairs, Julie Smith of the NSC, they're all doing a really terrific job 
uh, hurting the cats that are our allies in Europe. And the reality is you've got a France who wants to play a bigger role in international affairs, is frustrated with us over the nuclear submarine deal that we did mm -hmm. with Australia and the United Kingdom. We have a United Kingdom that's embroiled in its own political controversies. You've got a Germany that is uh, reluctant to support us because of the, the, uh, uh, the, the importance of energy costs uh, and to gas prices to German voters and German consumers with a brand new German chancellor, I might add. And then you've got Eastern European countries who are relatively new to NATO, relatively new to the EU, who are terrified of Russian incursion. And so Jake, we're keeping Jake, them all together. Jake Sullivan, the National Security yes. Advisor, was on today. And speaking about Germany, and we talked about that at length last week when we had the, the General Counsel of Chicago on, um, he basically said that uh, uh, if Russia goes into, uh, goes into Ukraine... Yeah. Uh, the Nord Stream deal is gone. The gas line is gone. That's what it sounds like. And that's and it sounds like. that that is a big law. That's that's probably bigger than any sanction can possibly be to to the Russians. That is a huge and, deal. I think Putin is incredibly surprised by the level of uh, uh, unity in Europe and in the NATO alliance. Yeah, I mean that that's a good thing. That's but but we have to look at the realities. Why is Putin doing what he's doing now? That's the and, big question. And, and the big que that's the big question. Or does and, he do it? And I, I, look, maybe I'm naive, but part of me thinks that the continued expansion of NATO, the Western expansion of NATO toward Russia, has not really been such a good thing. And that's a bipartisan issue that's been decades in the making. And I think that you think we're President pushing Trump, too hard. That we were pushing too hard. And I think that President Trump was had had some good points about trying to establish better relations with Russia and moving them a bit more into our orbit because in my view, China's the real threat, not Russia anymore. Having said that, he's done what he's done. NATO has countered it. I think that Putin, I agree with Patrick, that Putin is probably surprised at NATO's resolve so far, and we'll see where it goes. Is there a way, Patrick, that uh, uh, Putin can save face and, and back out of this? I think he has a number of options. Unfortunately, I think a lot of them have to do with interfering in Ukraine. I think he set the stage. The The army there is too big. We have 130,000 some folks uh, on the borders of Ukraine from the south, east and north. Uh, and so I think there there's the option for a limited incursion. He could declare that the Donbass region, which has already uh, been fiddled with by Russia over the last eight years, is independent and is a Russia supporting satellite. Mm -hmm. He, but if you if you look, uh, Fritz, I will bring this up. If you look at the map of yeah. Ukraine, you will see uh, the border with Russia. And we're putting this up uh, for those watching us on television. The border with Russia is massive. Yeah, it's massive. Yeah. And so I don't know how. Uh, and again, the uh, the Ukraine will be outnumbered and there isn't a, a NATO country that has said they're going to send troops in. They said they're going to provide defensive support for the Ukraine. Well, I mean, uh, what, what are these what are these other surrounding countries doing? Or what is what is Germany? Germany said absolutely no troops. Mm -hmm. France mm -hmm. doesn't want to. I mean, Great Britain. I mean, how many how many troops will you need? They've got to come a long way mm -hmm. to get to that uh, uh, Russian 
uh, Ukraine border. I think the role here is to raise the costs. If Putin is to violate the sovereignty of another country in Europe, we raise the costs from a sanctions perspective, Mm -hmm. slapping down on what the billionaires and the oligarchs can do with their money using swift sanctions, uh, and just raising the costs diplomatically across Europe. We make him pay for it. And I think that's the sort of thing that deters full-scale invasion. Although, let's let's be honest, a full-scale invasion of a country with 42 million people mm-hmm. is going to take a hell of a lot more than 130,000 Russians, who, by the way, don't want to invade their neighboring Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And also, he's got to play a domestic political game as well. Right. Uh, and he, he is obviously concerned about uh, how many Russian lives might be lost and one of the estimates i saw was like yeah. 10 possible you know 10 to 20,000 russian lives that could be lost these are, we'll get we'll get into some of these specifics okay. with the general when he joins us but again this is uh, uh, the, the, this could be a lot more than just uh, an invasion or an incursion into ukraine it, it could it could get a lot deeper a lot quicker right and and one of the things i'd be interested in the general's perspective on is as part of the exit ramp, mm-hmm. is is there a way to try to get Russia and Putin a little bit back into our orbit mm-hmm. and not so much going China's? Way? Well, that would be uh, that would be a huge uh, movement at, at this moment in time historically. We do have to pause. Uh, we're talking with Patrick Hanley and Josh Cantor. They're our in studio guests here in Chicago. I'm Bruce Dumont. When we come back live from Frankfurt, Germany, we'll be talking with Lieutenant General Ben Hodges. Don't go away. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces, just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. 
One in three adults has pre-diabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has pre-diabetes, with early diagnosis, pre-diabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has pre-diabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. Bruce Dumont back. Thank you very much for joining us this evening. Uh, in uh, this hour, our guests in studio, Patrick Hanley and Josh Cantro. They continue with me, however, our special guest uh, joining us live from Frankfurt, Germany, is Lieutenant General Ben Hodges. He joins us via Zoom. He is with the Center for European Policy Analysis. Once upon a time, he was the head of U.S. Army military forces in Europe. And again, uh, that was just one of his many accolades as a member of the United States military. And General, thank you for your service to country, and thank you very much for joining us tonight to try to put in context... Uh, to the American uh, viewers of this program, uh, exactly uh, what are what are what's at stake for the United States uh, in this showdown between Ukraine and Russia? And so, uh, let me begin with that question. Bruce, thanks first of all for the uh, for the privilege here and, and uh, opportunity to talk to uh, your your massive audience. What's at stake, of course, is uh, peace and security and stability uh, in Europe, uh, a respect for sovereign borders, and respect, respect for international order. And why does that matter to the United States? Uh, our economic prosperity uh, is tied to peace, security, and prosperity in Europe. Uh, Europe is the biggest trading partner for the United States. Plus, the United States is not able to do much by ourselves anymore. We have to have allies. And all of our best and most reliable allies come from Europe, as well as, of course, Canada and Australia. So this is about a whole lot more than just Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, the president has said that 3,000 troops, U.S. troops, are going uh, to, to that region. Uh, he said they're not going to be fighting forces. They're going to be defensive forces, and they're going to various NATO countries to back up uh, what is happening over there. My question to you is, whenever I hear, no matter who the president is, whenever a president makes a comment like that, I worry, based on history, well, what can go wrong that would change that mission that would get the United States into some form of, uh, of, of offensive action? So my question to you is, what could go wrong with this scenario that we're dealing with right now? What could go wrong that would indicate that uh, more U.S. forces are needed or their mission must be changed? 
Well, great question. Um, and of course, you know, there's already about 35,000 U.S. Army that are already in Europe mm -hmm. that are most of them are permanently stationed in Germany mm -hmm. and in Italy. Uh, and there are about 5,000 that are rotational forces that come from the states with uh, uh, aviation, tanks, etc. This has been going on since Russia invaded Ukraine back in 2014. So the additional troops that the president has uh, is deploying uh, include 2,000 that are coming from the United States. Most of them are from the 82nd Airborne Division at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, which is the highest level readiness force that the uh, that the Army has. And so those soldiers began arriving in Poland uh, today, as a matter of fact. And then there's another 1,000 soldiers from a striker squadron. It's a U.S. cavalry unit that's based in Germany, and they will start driving from uh, Bavaria, where they're based, mm -hmm. across Czech Republic, Slovakia, Hungary, and into Romania, where we have rotational forces. The mission for these troops is to uh, strengthen NATO's eastern flank. So where you see Romania and Poland on your map there and Slovakia and Hungary, they are there in case there is a spillover if Russia launches a new attack into Ukraine, which I think is quite likely, then mm -hmm. the, these troops that are going are there to uh, help protect our allies in case there is spillover. Uh, before you joined us, we asked a question here in Chicago. At this moment in time, what, what, would, uh, what would cause uh, Vladimir Putin to back down, not to invade? Has he crossed uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the point of no return in his battle with Ukraine? Well, we're in a, we're in a very dangerous situation right now. Um, of course, Russia invaded Ukraine in 2014, and they never left. And over the past year, they've been gradually increasing the number of troops that they have. Uh, and as you probably know, and many of your listeners know, Russian Navy vessels are beginning to converge onto the Black Sea. Um, they'll start, several of them are in the Mediterranean right now, and they'll begin moving up through the Straits into the Black Sea mm -hmm. uh, starting tomorrow. Uh, so it's Russian military power in and around Ukraine is continuing to grow. I don't see any sign of de-escalation. Uh, so your question, of course, gets to the heart of what we're all trying to figure out. Has President Putin decided yet what he is going to do? Um, I think what makes him back down is uh, exactly as well, what your earlier guest, Patrick, said, uh, the unity of all the members of the alliance, plus our other European um, partners, um, when you combine the diplomatic and economic power of all these nations, it dwarfs whatever Russia could do. So mm -hmm. the key is, does he believe we're serious or not? Of the NATO countries, is there one country that is viewed as more important to Vladimir Putin? Would it be Germany because of the economic uh, relationship they have? Well, Germany is the key here, uh, in my view, but it's the key for us, the, the collective uh, members of, of NATO and the European Union. Uh, Germany is the economic power. Uh, it's the has the most diplomatic clout, if you would, if you will, in Europe. And I think the Berlin is probably the one capital that can really influence Russia. Now, um, just because Germany is our most important ally in Europe doesn't mean that we're always happy with what they do or that right. they're always happy with what we do. Clearly, 
we need to hear decisively from Berlin that if Russia uh, were to launch a new offensive in Ukraine, that everything is on the table, including Nord Stream 2. And only today, today's the first time that I right. heard the uh, government of Chancellor Schultz specifically say Nord Stream 2 would also be included. Right. Yeah, that was something that uh, Jake Sullivan said on the uh, on the programs uh, uh, this morning as well. Uh, Patrick Canley, you referenced, he is here, and he has a question or comment for you, General. Yeah, I do, General. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. On the topic of NATO unity, uh, you mentioned the Russian fleet that's about to move through the Straits into the Black Sea. Uh, what... Why is Turkey not playing ball? Why why wouldn't Turkey block those fleets from entering the Black Sea and contributing to the crisis? Uh, a very good question, uh, and I'm glad to know. I'm glad I didn't say anything bad about you or Josh. I didn't know you guys were still <laughs> listening in. So. <laughs> Look, um, of course, after the I hate to sound like such a history nerd here, but the, the straits, the Dardanelles and the Bosphorus that connect the Aegean to the Black Sea, that geographical oddity which makes the Black Sea so strategically important for centuries um, is uh, under the sovereign control of Turkey as a result of what's called the Montreux Convention of 1936. After the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, Turkey was given uh, control over the straits. And there are very strict rules that, that uh, affect uh, warships that are able to go in and out of there for non-littoral states. So like the United States, for example, we can have a frigate go up in there for 21 days. You have to get permission from Turkey two weeks out, etc. Russia, as a Black Sea nation, is not restricted in that way. However, um, their submarines, um, have, there are some restrictions as to their submarines when they go in and out. They can only go for maintenance reasons. Russia routinely violates this. And General, Turkey we've got to we've got a pause. We've got a pause on the enforcement. We'll be right back. 145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest and then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it, or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. 
We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces, just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Bruce Dumont back, and uh, we continue with Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, who joins us live from Frankfurt, Germany. He is with the Center for European Policy Analysis, and he was the head of the U.S. Army uh, European uh, Command uh, for many years, uh, and that was the same position that was once held by uh, General George Patton and uh, Dwight David Eisenhower, who went on to great fame. So, uh, General, we're really uh, appreciative of your uh, sharing your, uh, your... You're more than just a, a historic nerd to us. <laughs> you're bringing a perspective that I think the American people and our listeners uh, will need to know. Josh Cantro has a question for you. Josh? Uh, General, pleasure being on with you and, um, and a real honor. Um, I wanted to pick up on a point that Bruce made earlier about like what could go wrong here. And I guess my question is, no, no NATO country and NATO itself, none of them have said that they're going to actually help Ukraine in terms of, you, you know, with troops, in terms of um, defending, bringing troops into Ukraine to defend a Russian invasion. So my question is, what are these troops, what is the point, what is the purpose of them, these additional troops that the U.S. has called up? Josh, thanks. And, and I did a poor job answering uh, that question earlier. What they're going there for, of course, is to provide additional capability along NATO's eastern flank. So inside NATO countries like Poland, like uh, Romania, where if Russia attacks, and as, as you can imagine, these things can get out of control, that there's spillover somehow. Uh, we are there to not only help work with our allies, but also to send a signal to the Kremlin. Do not let this get out of control. Do not allow, do not be so aggressive in what you're doing in Ukraine that it could in fact spill over. Now, of course, these things are very difficult to control once they start, but this is part of the administration's effort to uh, dampen, uh, if you will, uh, some of this. And I do wanna also say, Ukraine has not asked for a single soldier. I, I had the privilege to meet President Zelensky for about an hour uh, last week when I was in Kiev, and he said, look, we don't need American troops, British troops, German troops. What we need are the tools to defend ourselves. So exactly what the administration is doing now, 
weapons, ammunition, equipment that they can put into effect immediately, but also financial resources. Because as you can imagine, what Russia's doing now, by design, is crushing Ukraine's economy. And, and they're running out of money so that they can even do what they need to do to defend themselves. What do they need uh, specifically? Did, uh, they said that they're not asking for troops, uh, but what additional things do they need? Well, uh, of course, we, the Russians have significant overmatch when it comes to naval capabilities mm -hmm. in the Black Sea uh, and in air power. Land power is a different story. Um, you've got almost 200,000 Ukrainian soldiers, both regular as well as reservists. Uh, and I think Patrick said it earlier, you know, you're talking about a country of over 40 million people, uh, twice the size of Germany. Um, so Russia is not going to come in and roll over Kiev. They're not going to roll over. Uh, in fact, I don't even think they want to. I mm -hmm. think if they attack, it's going to be much uh, lower profile type uh, limited objectives to avoid the large casualties that they will surely suffer if they do attack. The kind of weapons that they need are uh, anti-tank weapons, which the United States and the UK are delivering, um, and they really need air defense weapons that can help them against drones, helicopters, uh, low-flying aircraft, uh, and those are being delivered both by the United States and by uh, some of our other allies as well. How important is the weather to when uh, Russia might attack? Well, this is a question that's uh, coming up quite a bit. Um, you're right that historically this region, um, because there's so many rivers, there's so many marshes, and it's um, it's also in a way it's kind of like the American Midwest. I mean, it's just endless, thick, rich, black dirt fields mm -hmm. that when the, when it's wet, uh, it can become a morass. And so, generally speaking, February to March is the ideal time, and the ground is typically frozen. Uh, the most. However, I think uh, the Russians, of course, have been here for centuries. They know what the terrain is like, and their equipment is designed, I think, to be more effective there than, say, a much heavier American or German tank might be, or a British tank. So um, I can't, I'm not sure how much of weather is going to impact the timing. Uh, it will affect the use of drones somewhat. It will affect if the weather is particularly bad in the Black Sea or Sea of Azov. Uh, their ability to conduct amphibious operations. Uh, for me, the, the the bigger effect on timing is are the Beijing Winter Olympics. Mm. Uh, I'm certain that President Putin is not going to uh, do something to upstage his friend uh, President Xi's uh, Olympics. And you'll mm. remember, of course, in 2014, uh, when President Putin invaded Ukraine, it was just days after he had concluded his own Sochi Winter Olympics. Mm -hmm. So. That, to me, seems to be about right, plus all the stuff will be in place. Um, what can you tell us about the, uh, uh, the, the cybersecurity uh, prowess of Ukraine? Obviously, we know that the, uh, the Russians have significant power in that region, but is there any way that uh, Ukraine can fight back uh, in a cyber way? Well... Um, I fully expect whatever attack the attack looks like, whether it's all 100,000, 120,000, or if it's going to be a series of limited attacks, it is going to be encased in cyber strikes going after Kyiv 
to uh, blind uh, the national leadership from what's happening at the front, to make it difficult to make decisions or issue orders, uh, to disrupt air defense systems, to disrupt transportation networks. So cyber is going to be part and parcel of that. I can't tell yet how prepared the Ukrainians are. I spoke with several members of their rada, the parliament, the other day when I was there, and uh, I'm not I'm not confident that um, they have fully gripped the significance of the threat. Uh, Estonia, which is one of the leading um, cyber expert uh, nations in, in all of Europe, um, has already sent a team into Ukraine to help them, and they have a team standing by to go back in there as Ukrainians are ready. But just like our own government, you know, the different parts of the government, different businesses, none of that is under one mm -hmm. overarching authority. And so you still uh, you still have to go out and check uh, to make sure that uh, you're prepared. And I, I think uh, this is going to be a vulnerability. It has been reported by the U.S. media. And a couple of weeks ago, it was reported by uh, by, by the English uh, press and also by the English uh, intelligence divisions that uh, that the Russians are preparing for some sort of a false flag operation where they're going to create an incident, uh, they're going to record it on motion pictures, and they're going to create an incident that will then justify uh, the Russians going into uh, Ukraine. Uh, what can you tell us about the likelihood of, now we've sort of blown the cover on the idea, but uh, is that likely to have dissuaded them from using that uh, that device? Well, first of all, there's no doubt in my mind that that's exactly what they intend to do. Uh, they have been giving out Russian passports to people in Donbass now for the past uh, few years, as well as in other places. And then they follow that up with statements by the uh, former former President Medvedev or Foreign Minister Lavrov saying it's our duty, it's Russia's duty to protect all Russians wherever they are. And so uh, any number of scenarios um, are out there where they would try to justify what they're doing it for humanitarian purposes or to protect these Russians who are being so terribly treated by uh, the Ukrainian government and so on. So I fully expect that. And of course, uh, you know, disinformation operations um, has sometimes broad objectives and sometimes limited or specific objectives. So even though we are now talking about it, that will not necessarily be known to everybody at every level in Ukraine or, or across uh, Europe, How for example. So I, I would expect to see this type of thing uh, all the same. How do we guard against a similar uh, false flag operation that would engage the United States and Russia directly that would create another reason to bring the United States more into this battle or NATO more into this offensive battle? Could they do the same thing? Well, you know, we are we are accustomed uh, to them uh, attempting to do things like this uh, for the past several years now. Whenever mm -hmm. we have units move into Poland or Lithuania or whatever, instantly there are all kinds of fake stories that come out about uh, commanders or soldiers or where they try to create a situation where it looks like a soldier got into trouble uh, when in fact the whole thing was was fake, but it, it's designed to undermine the confidence that people have in us, um, just just like they've attempted to do inside the United States, and and so 
being resilient, understanding that this is part of what's out there is, is an important first step. Finland is probably one of the best in the world at this. They teach elementary kids to begin to understand what they're watching or hearing, whether or not, you know, to be more discerning about what mm -hmm. they're seeing and hearing, to be able to kind of sort through very clever uh, false information that's designed to cause us to lose confidence in our neighbors and in our institutions. That sounds like something we should be doing more of in the United States. And uh, uh, I know our guests around the table are nodding as they say that. We do have to pause, General. I hope you can stick with us for a little bit longer. 1-800-723-8289. If you have a question about the uh, what's happening uh, with Russia and Ukraine and the, uh, the buildup involving U.S. troops, there's 3,000 troops that are either there or headed there. I'm Bruce Dumont, back shortly from Chicago and also live tonight from Frankfurt, Germany. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. One in three adults has prediabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has prediabetes, with early diagnosis, prediabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has prediabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. 145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest. And then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. 
If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it, or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. Bruce Dumont back in Chicago. Uh, uh, joining us this evening in the studio, we have uh, our Republican is Josh Cantro. Our Democrat is Patrick Hanley. And uh, joining us uh, from uh, uh, his home in uh, Frankfurt, Germany, is Lieutenant General Ben Hodges. Uh, he is with the Center for European uh, Policy Analysis. But once upon a time, he was the head of uh, the U.S. Army Forces uh, in in Europe and uh, also in Asia for a while. So, General, I want to take a moment because we could spend the rest of the program reading your very distinguished military bio. But I wonder if you might uh, tick off, in your opinion, uh, two or three of the most significant uh, roles that you have played for the United States uh, uh, in your service to this country. Yeah. Wow. Um, thanks, Bruce. Uh, I'm very proud that I was uh, in the infantry for 38 years, uh, that I had a chance to be a, a commander of soldiers in the 101st Airborne Division uh, when we went into Iraq in uh, 2003. Uh, and uh, also I served in Afghanistan from 2009 to 10. But really my, my last assignment, uh, the last three years I was in the Army, uh, was as commander of U.S. Army Europe. And this was right after Russia had invaded Ukraine the first time. And, and you know, after we thought, we all thought and hoped that Russia was going to be our partner. And, and we were wrong. And uh, so to see the U.S. and NATO build back up, uh, regain capability so that we could deter Russia and, and protect our allies. Uh, mm-hmm. That was, uh, yeah, professionally, that was, that was quite a challenge, and, but also very rewarding. And being around young people is the best part, whatever mm-hmm. job I've ever had. Uh, being around young sergeants and young lieutenants, mm-hmm. I mean, the humor that, that those guys have mm-hmm. is, uh, you, you can't top it. <laughs> a question for for those uh, around the country who may not be familiar with with ranks in, in the army. Obviously, the Senate General is is one of the uh, major ranks within the United States Army. But when you're in that position, as you, and you say you were there uh, the last time that that Russia invaded Ukraine, uh, what what is the communication that you have from that position with people back in uh, in in Washington, uh, who do you talk to? How does what you say get reported up the chain to the President of the United States? I mean, how how does that work in a practical way, General? Well, it's it's actually a pretty good system that has evolved over the last uh, five or six decades. Mm-hmm. You know, the um, I have a I have two bosses. I had a boss who was the commander of U.S. European Command. Uh, which is the four-star responsible for all U.S. forces all over Europe. Um, at the time, it was uh, first it was Admiral Stavridis, then General Breedlove, and then General Scaparotti. Uh, they had, and I was the Army commander under them. There was a Navy guy and an Air Force and Marine and Special Forces. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also had an Army boss back to the Pentagon, the Chief of Staff of the Army, 
who at the time was General Mark Milley, who, who you know was now the right. chief of the uh, ch- chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Mm-hmm. So the Army provides me the people, the equipment uh, to make sh- train what we say trained and ready forces. My operational commander was the joint commander at U.S. Uh, European Command. So um, it's it's a system that's evolved over decades, and it, and it works pretty well. Okay, we have a question from Dave listening to us in the Redwoods, uh, Redwoods, California. Uh, he's got a question for you. Dave, go ahead. You're on the air with the general and the rest of our team. I watched an article on CBS News years ago about American forces that had taken command in the Ukraine, taken citizenship and become Ukrainian soldiers and embedded themselves in the Ukrainian army. How will this affect a possible invasion, knowing that these are expatriate U.S. citizens in the Ukraine acting as American soldiers and possibly implanted special forces advisors intentionally planted there by the Obama administration in 2014? General, that's uh, quite a loaded question. you want to comment on Tell that? Tell me. Good answers. So, um, first of all, I've, of course, I've, I've never heard of that. Um, we do have uh, special forces advisors wearing the uniform of the United States Army that are in Ukraine helping to train Ukrainian forces. And we have now, for the past six years, had about 150 soldiers at a time at a Ukrainian training base in western Ukraine near the city of Lviv, helping Ukraine uh, rebuild their forces. Um, no doubt there are, and I think I know the one case maybe that the gentleman is referring to, uh, We there are millions of uh, Ukrainian diaspora in Canada and in the United States and other places around the world where some of these may, uh, people may have gone back to Ukraine uh, to, to join, to serve. In fact, one, I believe, was a West Point graduate, uh, but went back and was killed uh, in Ukraine. But there is no planned embedding. I mean, I, I cannot think of a single benefit or purpose uh, of doing that. Okay. Thank you very much. We're going to go to another Dave in San Francisco. Go ahead, Dave. Are you there? Go ahead, Dave. Dave, are you there? Once? Twice? Here, hello, hello, oh, hello, hello. My heavens. Hello. Yes, we hear you, but, yeah, we can, okay, good. We can hear you in Kiev. <laughs> good deal. Go ahead. Uh, the, the famous nuclear power plant that blew up back in the late 1980s, uh, Chernobyl, yes. is in the Ukraine. It's never been properly cleaned up. And good government is based on the idea that there's a social contract, that the uh, leaders actually do good for the people. Mm -hmm. And so are the Russians promising to clean up Chernobyl? Are the U.S. military promising to clean up Chernobyl? Is NATO promising to clean up Chernobyl? All right, let's let the general general respond to your question. Go ahead, General. Any comment on Chernobyl and its future? No. Well, no, this this is a very interesting question because uh, it is very close to the border between uh, Ukraine and and Russia. And there is some concern that um, Russian forces, should they launch a new attack, that they might attempt to pass through that area and that there is still some radioactive dirt uh, material there. Uh, I should say Belarus, not Russia. Excuse me. Thanks for putting the map back up. Mm-hmm. But there, that is one of the routes um, that uh, would might possibly be used by Russian forces if they attacked 
from Belarus. So, mm -hmm. so there is concern there. It is the responsibility of Ukraine, of course, to continue to try to clean that place up. Uh, Russia has no interest in doing it. And for sure, look, the United States, or Ukraine is not a NATO country. No NATO soldiers have been invited to Ukraine. Mm -hmm. None are planned to go there except for the training missions uh, that I just described that have been going on for quite some time. So uh, the gentleman is correct. It is the duty, it is good governance to take care of people, uh, this social contract, I, I would agree with that completely. Uh, this is the responsibility of Ukraine. It is useful to remember, Ukraine has been a democracy or independent, let's say, for about 30 years. Now we've been at it for about 250 years. Um, so while Ukraine is far, far, far from perfect, it has continued to move in a direction towards democracy. That's, that's what they want. That's mm -hmm. what this whole thing is about. And that's what President Putin fears, not NATO. What he fears is Ukraine eventually getting their act together and people uh, beginning to prosper and enjoy freedom and starting to look like Poland or Estonia. That's what he fears, because then his own population is going to say, why don't we have that? How many Russians are living in Ukraine? Well, that's a good question. Um, of course, Ukraine uh, was part of the Soviet Union for, for decades. It has been part of the Russian Empire uh, for periods of time. Uh, so you've got uh, a, a large number of the population speak Russian, but they're not Russian, if, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. So um, the only part of, of uh, Ukraine where um, there seems to be uh, some uh, pro-Russian sentiment tends to be in the eastern part in what's called the Donbass and down uh, along part of the Sea of Azov. What's interesting, you know, people have talked about President Putin as if he's some kind of genius. He, he plays go, he plays chess while we're all playing checkers. Mm -hmm. This is a bunch of nonsense. Um, he's done more to uh, turn Ukraine against him than anybody else could have done. I mean, in a short amount of time, he took their biggest neighbor, or one of the biggest neighbors, with 40 million-plus people that generally were, not if not pro-Russian, they at least tolerated their neighbor, despite the history. Mm -hmm. right. Now he's got 40 million Ukrainians that hate him and are prepared to fight. So I'm, I'm not sure. And he's got Sweden and Finland talking openly about maybe joining NATO is not such a bad thing. Mm -hmm. So I don't know how much of a genius he is. Now, uh, he, he wants an assurance from the United States and NATO that the Ukraine will never be invited to join their club. How realistic is that? Ever? Well, it's, it's totally unrealistic, unrealistic for him to expect that um, the alliance would ever agree to give Russia veto over what the alliance does. You know, whether or not Ukraine comes into the alliance in the next few years is a totally different story. But I think the principle, uh, you know, this is not the 18th century where Russia gets to decide what other nations do. Uh, this is the 21st century and nations choose to make their own foreign policy. And I, this is an important principle. Mm -hmm. Of the U.S. soldiers that are on European soil now, what exactly do they do? I need about a 30 second answer to this one. What are they there for? Well, of course, what we do is we're, we're U.S. soldiers that are in Europe, including our great Air Force, are here to do missions not just in Europe, but also uh, Eurasia, Africa, Middle East, 
So what Europe gives us is access. Uh, Ramstein Air Force Base, for example, training, and it's where we work with all of our allies and build this, uh, build, build these relationships. And Wiesbaden is uh, primarily for medical purposes. People coming home from uh, wounded yes. soldiers. I, is that correct? No, so that that's in Limestool. That's in Limestool. Wiesbaden is the headquarters for U.S. Okay. Army Europe. Okay. We've got a pause. I'm Bruce Dumont. Back shortly from Chicago and beautiful Frankfurt. Let's be honest. The National Symphony may not be in his future, but he wanted to try violin. So you said yes because you love him. And if you love him that much, love him enough to make sure he's buckled up and in the back seat. Find out more about keeping your kids safe in your vehicle at NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. Show them you love them. Keep them safe. Visit NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. What if the music stopped? If the familiar voices were silenced? If there were no breaking news updates? What if your companion and connection to your community came with a monthly fee? Don't worry, we're free local radio with you wherever you go. Celebrating 100 years and looking forward to the next 100. We are broadcasters. Text radio to 52886 and let Congress know you depend on your local TV and radio stations. This message furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly. But we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council.
Bruce Dumont back. Uh, it's our last uh, segment this evening, 1-800-723-8289. Uh, we've got uh, Josh and we've got Patrick Hanley in studio with me, and we have Lieutenant General Ben Hodges uh, joining us from uh, Frankfurt, Germany. He is with the Center for European Policy Analysis. Um, what is the mission of that uh, group, uh, General? The mission of the of your group, or no, the, the or mission my, of your center SIPA, for think tank. Yeah, yeah. It's a think tank. Yeah, SIPA, so you you, th- you sit around the and you European policy analysis is a think tank that's based in Washington D.C. and um, we're focused on Central and Eastern Europe uh, on uh, the transatlantic relationship, if you will, uh, supporting de- supporting democratic efforts in Central and Eastern Europe, uh, as well as uh, everything necessary for deterrence, for security and stability mm. in Europe. So that's why Ukraine is of such interest to us as well as to me. What can you tell us about uh, the leader of uh, the Ukraine? You say you have spoken with him, you've met with him. Uh, what sort of a guy is he? Uh, I, actually, I was very impressed. Um, he's a very fit, uh, dynamic leader. You know, he's not a traditional or uh, orthodox politician. His background came from a, he was a comedic actor. And um, so when he speaks, it's not like when you speak to a normal politician, but he, and he clearly has a sense of humor, but he impressed me. He is, he is not confused about the threat. He knows that the survival of his government and the survival of Ukraine as a sovereign state um, is in great danger. you know, there was some disagreement between him and the White House here over the last couple of weeks about um, how big is the attack going to be? Is it actually imminent or is it possible? And he made it clear to me that uh, while he understands the threat, he also has the very difficult challenge of balancing with his uh, balancing to keep his economy going. Uh, you've mm-hmm. got uh, companies are starting to pull out. Uh, the Russians know this. Uh, the Russians would love to see Ukraine's co- economy collapse. So they could present Ukraine as a failed state that could never join the West. So he's having to balance that and, and uh, keep the economy going as well as prepare for a possible attack. Is there anything that the United States or Western uh, companies, commercial entities, can do to, to beef them up during this troubled time? Um, for sure. Uh, of course, uh, the industry that's providing the uh, capabilities they've asked for, whether it's weapons or ammunition or medical equipment or radar, uh, that's a part of it. But there's also um, the the Biden administration, I think, is doing a very good job of looking for additional supplies and sources of gas um, that can take the pressure off of European countries. If they're concerned Mm -hmm. uh, about supporting Ukraine, and paying the price when Russia starts to disrupt gas flow during the wintertime, um, the U.S. effort to find additional sources of gas is an important strategic effort here to help keep the alliance together. And I have to say the Biden administration um, has done the best job I've seen in terms of comprehensive, uh, persistent diplomacy that maybe since 1995 in the Dayton Peace Accord, it, it's really been impressive. Uh, Josh Cantro. General, I want to go back to a question about cybersecurity. I'm a cybersecurity attorney, and I've been in this field for about 15 years. And I was, I, I recalled you answering that you didn't, it, it, it seemed to me from your answer early, in an earlier segment that you believed 
that the Ukrainians really weren't ready from a cybersecurity standpoint to withstand that aspect of the Russian attack. Do you think it's a lack of awareness, or is it just a lack of talent within the country to be able to deal with that talent and resources, I should say? Um, thanks, thanks for highlighting the fact that I did such a terrible job of answering the question earlier. No, I, 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 didn't, I didn't think you did at all. I, I just wanted to dive into that a little bit more. It's interesting. No, no, I, I'm teasing. Uh, Ukrainians are very tech savvy. I, I have been impressed with uh, how quickly they picked up on uh, with new equipment that we provided. So this is not an issue of talent at all. Um, I think it's, uh, well, think about it. Last summer, uh, the Colonial Pipeline here in the United States mm-hmm. got shut down. And, and right. I was astounded that a major American business would not have been better prepared after everything that's happened over the last few years. So I think that's what we're seeing in, in Ukraine. Um, the ones who I spoke to that were members of the RADA, of course, they have their own internal sort of the parliament. They have their own internal network. And so they are responsible for making sure that people are doing the right things, not leaving digital doors open, if you will. Um, I don't know about, say, inside the Ministry of Defense or the, the president's office. I suspect they are pretty at a pretty high level. Uh, the good news is that Estonia, which they really, as, as you know, given your expertise, mm-hmm. the, the Estonians are very good, and uh, and they're helping. Uh, Patrick Hanley? General, you were mentioning earlier about the diplomatic efforts, and it makes me think about what happened in Qatar a couple weeks ago. We raised Qatar to the status of a major non-NATO ally. To what extent do you think that's going to be able to ease the burden on energy prices uh, should something happen uh, with Russia, particularly in Germany? Well, certainly Connor has uh, has stepped forward in a variety of ways, both uh, in the aftermath of Afghanistan as well as now. Uh, I would not be uh, an expert on impact on prices, uh, but in, if you're in Europe in the wintertime, you're, you're most interested in supply. And so mm-hmm. I think anything uh, that uh, increases the supply availability is going to be very welcome here. And, and the main thing is that that will take some pressure off European governments who are worried about standing up to Russia is if they lose access to their supply. And Patrick, thanks, because you're, you're giving me a chance to close, go back and, and um, fix something I said earlier when I was asked, I think, by Bruce about, is there a country in Germany that's most important for Russia? And I mm-hmm. immediately started talking about how Germany was the key for all of us. Um, there is not a question about whether or not Germany is a part of NATO or that they will come through and do what's needed. You know, uh, the Chancellor of Germany, Mr. Schultz, mm-hmm. is in Washington, D.C. tomorrow, meeting with President Biden. Mm-hmm. Um, I am confident that despite some frustration that they've been not as decisive as I would have liked early on, you can feel it. <clears throat> you can feel it moving. And I think the Russians are, uh, they know that. And if they see Germany standing next to the United States, uh, and those, the threat of sanctions is going to be a lot more compelling. And on that uh, positive note, we thank Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, uh, who is with the Center for European Policy Analysis, and he joins us live from Frankfurt tonight. Also, Josh. One in three adults has prediabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man. 
You, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has prediabetes, with early diagnosis, prediabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has prediabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. 145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest. And then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it, or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. 